the book of Titus. And uh, we've been taking just a few verses here at a time as we're going through an in-depth look of it. And remember, Paul is the writer of this letter. He is a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, um, according to the faith of God's elect, and an acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. And that's the theme we're going to see throughout the book, that true doctrine, correct doctrine, brings about a true, a correct life. Right doctrine brings about right living. And in hope, as we looked at last week, of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, his own nature is truth. He can't be different from his own nature. Has promised before time began. And he has in due time manifested his, it through his preaching of his word, which committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. And now Paul writes to who the letter is addressed to. And it's written to Titus. Now, as we go on in the letter, we'll discover that it is intended that this letter would be publicly read throughout the churches. So Paul had a sense that although he was writing to a pastor about the issues in the church, it would be written to churches, but it would be for all pastors or all ministers, all leaders for all times. And every one of us are to be leaders in some fashion, whether it's your own family, um, whether it's here in the church, But every one of us are called to the ministry. Every one of us need to grow in the aspect of leadership. And so to Titus, and he says, a true son in our common faith. Now, Titus was a Gentile convert. Um, Unlike Timothy, in Acts chapter 16, Paul took Timothy because his father was a Gentile, his mom was a Jew, and he had him circumcised. Not because he thought that was making him more right with God or spiritual, but to open doors for ministry because they would go into the synagogues first and then go to the Gentiles. And so if the question came up, well, hey, is this guy a Gentile or a Jew? Well, he's a Jew because in the Jewish culture, if your mom was a Jew, then you're a Jew. If your dad was a Jew, you're not a Jew. Your mom has to be a Jew. And so, uh, yes, he's a Jew. Well, was he circumcised the eighth day? Because typically the dads were the one that would circumcise. And if his dad was Gentile, didn't follow through. Then he's going to, Paul is going to, the door is going to be shut as far as ministering to the Jews. So Paul tried to be all things to all people. And in this sense, he had Timothy circumcised. But with Titus, not at all. Titus was an example of a true Gentile believer and pastor. No Judaism in it whatsoever. Pure Gentile. And so, in essence, Timothy was a a picture of a Jewish son in the faith, one who would uh, be an example to the Jews of a Christian convert and to go minister unto the Jews in that fashion to be able to have that door open into the synagogues to preach Jesus. But Titus was the one that was a real clear break. There was no Jewishness into it. As Paul told Peter in Galatians, you have a ministry to the Jews, Peter, but my ministry is unto the Gentiles. And so Titus would have a a pure Gentile ministry, and he was a pure Gentile pastor. And uh, so it falls in a very unique uh, sense here. Now, it is interesting that he's not mentioned in the book of Acts, which again gives us a clear indication that the book of Acts, as much as there is in there and as many stories as there is in there, it's not trying to give us a complete picture of everything that happened in the Apostle Paul's ministry. And of course, that's not even talking about uh, Peter's ministry and Bartholomew's ministry and Thomas's ministry and all the other guys. What uh, incredible, wonderful volumes we'll be studying in heaven on, looking at all the great things God did through these men. But um, even though Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts, it's presumed, it's most probable, that he was saved during Paul's second missionary journey. And we do have him mentioned nine times in the book of 2 Corinthians. A matter of fact, turn over there if you would. And we learn a lot about 
this guy by the name of Titus here in 2 Corinthians. There in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul was wanting to get started in preaching the gospel, but Titus wasn't there. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, he said, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So he, he not knowing where Titus was at and not Titus not being rendezvousing at the right place at the right time, he had a great concern in his spirit to the point that he didn't feel like he could minister until Titus was accounted for and present. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Paul went through a tremendous difficult time. And uh, we learn about it in chapter 1, where he was pushed above measure, beyond strength, despairing of life itself. Um, he went through an incredible um, difficulty there in Asia, But the thing that brought him peace and comfort was when Titus came and ministered unto the Apostle Paul and the gang that was with him at that time who went through such a horrendous, difficult time. And he found that this very mature brother in the faith, of course, he was a guy he led to the Lord. The people that Paul led to the Lord, he called them his sons in the faith. And not that he... Uh, were physically his sons or even spiritually uh, in some special relationship. It was just, it was a part of the byproduct of Paul being a Christian as he led these young men to the Lord who would go on and lead other young men to the Lord. And uh, so he saw that as his legacy. We see that in Philemon 1.10. He says, my child Onesimus, whom I begotten in my imprisonment. So while Paul was a prisoner, he led this uh, slave by the name of Onesimus to the Lord. In 1 Timothy 1.2, Timothy, my true child in the faith. So this was uh, uh, just a way that Paul related. Again, he told Timothy, you look to, as a young man, look to every man as your father, look to every older woman as your mother, look to every younger woman as your sister, look to every young man as your brother. Well, as Timothy was a good older, Paul had one other experience, and as an older man, you get to look at the younger people as your children. And uh, it's a wonderful uh, thing to see, um, you know, I've been pastoring here 20 years now, and to see many of the kids born in the church or growing up in the church, and now to be able to marry them or dedicate their children. And uh, I really do feel like a a parent to them in in some aspects, Um, and also uh, as a grandpa uh, to their kids. It's, it's a lot of fun. And so Paul is talking about this relationally. And the reason I'm making this clear, because in Matthew, Jesus said, call no man father, but God alone. And uh, again, it's wrong for us to have a spiritual father. In other words, another mediator between us and God. That is uh, talked about in the book of Revelation. He said, the deeds of the Nicolaitans I hate, which means, again, a clergy hierarchy. We have one mediator between God and man, between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. No other mediator. Every man, although emotionally he's like my father or my son or my brother, he, we are all just fellow Christians. We're all, follow, we're all fellow brother believers. Nobody's higher than another person. And so in position of authority, far as governing the church, those who are leadership in the church do have the responsibility before God to take care of the sheep. But far as one person's prayers, they're not greater. Or one person's insights in the word, they're not greater. And so when people... Um, come forward and there's some leaders up there and they're like, oh, no, 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 you know, I need the pastor to pray for me. You know, it's in a sense showing their spiritual immaturity in that they're saying there's a divine anointing on Pastor Brian's prayers uh, above anybody else's prayers. And if you understand the Bible and understand the concept of the Lord, that's just not true. Um, every believer has equal access into the throne of God. Every believer is equally as powerful 
in the word, in prayer, in witnessing. You see, we're all fellow Christians. As, as Paul said there in 2 Corinthians, not that I would lord it over your faith, but I am fellow sharers of your joy. However, as far as the organization goes, God has put in the church leadership. Everybody's a part. One's a hand, one's a foot, one's an eye. We're all a part of the body of Christ. But God has given responsibilities to the leadership for the overseeing of the body. And it's important that those in the body recognize that and submit to that. And that's the way it functions. Even within God himself, there is a hierarchy. The first person of the Trinity is God the Father. The second person is the Son. The third person is the Holy Spirit. So the Lord our God is one Lord, but within the very nature of God himself, our one God is three persons, and those three persons are in a very clear hierarchy of authority. Um, The Holy Spirit is to declare the Son and the Father. Jesus came to declare the Father. And that's the way it is. And as you study through, you'll see that. Jesus, for example, in the Gospel of John said, the Father is greater than I. In the Greek, that word greater is very specific. It's not greater as in substance or in nature. It's simply a word is greater in authority. The Father is the first person of the Trinity. Jesus is the second. Jesus is very clear. When I send the Holy Spirit, he's going to take of mine and declare to you. He's not going to speak anything of himself. He will speak of me and he will declare me. So, um, There's a very clear hierarchy. So within the church, there is to be, again, it's representing the nature of God. There is leadership. But again, there's a big difference between saying the leadership is more spiritual, their prayers are more powerful, their insights in the word are more accurate or or more uh, a greater blessing. You see, that's just not true. So simply as a position of authority, But equally, we're always brothers and sisters on the same exact level. And that is the way God intended to be. So Titus is called uh, my brother here in in 2 Timothy 2.13, where um, in the faith, but yet he also calls him his son. Because again, that's the relationship wording that's being used. Well, we also found in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13, He says, therefore, we had been comforted in your comfort as we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. So when Titus came, he brought a great word from the believers in Corinth and that was they received him and more importantly, they received a very, very, very heavy letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, from the Apostle Paul where he basically scolded and spanked the church in Corinth. And they could have either tarred and feathered Titus or received it. And as it turned out, they received the letter. And so that was a great comfort. Also in verse 14 there, For if anything I have boasted it to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. So we sent him out going, I know they're going to receive the letter. I know they're going to submit. I know they're going to be pierced to the heart by the Holy Spirit. They're going to be teachable and moldable and everything that we had hoped for, um, you guys were. And so all the boasts I had in t- t- towards Titus, towards you, was true. And in 2 Corinthians 8, 6, so we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. And in chapter 8, verse 16, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. And then in verse 23, 2 Corinthians eight twenty-three. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner, fellow worker, concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the church, the glory of Christ. There in chapter 8, Titus was to go to all the various churches and collect an offering for the poor people in Jerusalem because of a famine that was going to hit, that had been prophesied by Agabus the prophet in Acts chapter 11. 
And so before the famine came, they were to go and start collecting the finances, why the church was healthy uh, worldwide, to take a bundle of money to help support the poor that would be poor, even poorer in Jerusalem. And Titus was the representative of the Gentiles. There were others that were from Jerusalem. But he makes it very clear that when he had gone down to certain churches, he talked to them about tithes and offerings. And maybe many of the people were giving tithes, but they had not yet learned how to give offerings. And Titus came there and taught on this and encouraged them until the church was, from a willing heart, developed spiritually, not to just give money over, but to give offering unto God. And he received that offering, and he now is coming down to Corinth and saying, you guys also, there's a depth of giving you haven't learned yet. There's a grace of God that he wants to pour upon your life you've not yet learned. And we're praying that the same thing that was in Titus's heart towards the churches in Macedonia would now also be there towards you in Corinth and that you would develop the same exact radical heart of giving. And, uh, and he basically says, if anybody wants to know his credentials, say, he's equal to me. Him being there is the same as if I'm there. Uh, he's, we're fellow workers. He's my partner. Um, it's not like he's some flunky I'm sending there. I'm sending somebody to you that is equal in character. He's equal in calling. He is one who has the same heart and the same teachings. Exactly. And that's who I'm sending to you, which is, boy, quite a very high compliment for the Apostle Paul to give. But we also hear some incredible confidence he has in this young man. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18, I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did he not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? So again, we see that Titus was this guy who had the same exact calling spirit walk as the Apostle Paul. Now, while Paul was ministering, he discovered that right behind him was a bunch of Jews that were proselyting the Gentiles. So they would show up and say, oh yeah, we're a Christian uh, group like the Apostle Paul, but we've been sent from Jerusalem to help disciple you to understand that even though you're Gentiles, you need to become Jews. And so they were putting pressure on these Gentiles to be circumcised and to change their diet to a Jewish diet and keep the Sabbath and all of these things. And finally, the word got to a Paul. He turned around. He faced off with these guys. And they said, you know what, Paul? You're absolutely wrong. We've been sent by the guys in Jerusalem to do this very thing. And they basically could not come to agreements. And Paul grabbed them by the ears and said, we're going to Jerusalem right now. And so in Acts chapter 15, he grabs these guys before they pollute another church. And in Acts chapter 15, they come and he gets all the apostles that were there and all the leaders in Jerusalem. And Barnabas and Paul said, hey, this cannot go on like this. And there he, Peter stepped in and said, you know what, Paul, you're absolutely right. Basically, what we've learned is that we can't keep the law. We all failed. Our whole father, all our forefathers failed. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of ourselves. There is no laws that need to be kept. However, we would appreciate if the Gentiles would do a couple of things to not stumble the Jews. And one of those things was basically eating things with blood in it. In other words, the blood wasn't drained out of the cow. Or a lot of times um, in many parts of the world today, the delicacy is to eat the blood. Um, uh, Greg uh, Opine told me a story of um, when he had first in Hungary, they said, hey, we're going to kill the pig and uh, we're going to chop it up and we want you to be there to eat fresh pork. You've never ate anything like it, bacon and ham. And, and Greg's like, absolutely, man, I'll be there. He was a single guy in Baia, Hungary at the time. And he got there and they got all this ham and bacon and the guy went over and he goes, we're not going to feed any of this, we're going to give you the best part. And he went over and poured this bowl of blood and stirred it up and put some flour in there and just stirred it all up until it looked like this gelatin, this red gelatin. And then put a big loaf of bread and he goes, it's all yours. 
And Greg hadn't ate all day long. He was just couldn't wait to have this fresh bacon and ham. And, and uh, he took a nibble of it and just about puked. And uh, he goes, you know, I, I really blew it today. I, I shouldn't have ate so much. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I just can't do this. And, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll have a little piece of that ham over there. Um, <laughs> but he was able to uh, get by without eating that huge bowl of blood. Um, but that's a, a delicacy, and it's a, a common thing. But again, uh, as most of you are growing, does that sound good to anybody? I mean, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but any you guys ever do that? Yeah, there's a few of you guys that are going, hey, I'm all for it. Bring that bowl of blood on. Um, as obviously, that would be a great stumbling thing to uh, the Jews. And uh, anyway, everything they wrote in that letter, Paul later in the book of 1 Corinthians said, go for it. <laughs> you know, there is no law. Scripturally, you know, I understand these guys in Acts 15 wrote the letter and we distributed it. We told you. This is Peter's desire that you wouldn't stumble the Jews. But if you're just a pure Gentile church, I just want you to know that there is no command of God either way on uh, eating. Jesus said it's not what goes in the man, but it's what comes out of the heart that defiles the man. So food. Now, I'm not talking about marijuana or vodka or I said eat food. Um, I've had people say, yeah, right there. Everything you put in your mouth, you know, it's cool. You know, uh, you want to drag in the marijuana. And uh, I'm like, okay, let me go get a spoon and scoop some of that dog poop up over there. And you give thanks to God for it. And, you know, everything's good for food. Then, you know, obviously just because it's on planet Earth doesn't mean you drink it or smoke it or eat it. Um, use common sense. But but far as food goes, um, again, there is no law. But um, in Galatians, Paul talks about this meeting. And uh, in Galatians chapter 2, go ahead and turn over there if you would, to the book of Galatians chapter 2. And we're talking about this very meeting. Titus actually went to Jerusalem during this meeting. And Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation, communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, um, was compelled to be circumcised. So Paul went up there to Jerusalem, but he didn't meet in the synagogues. He didn't go into the temple because he had this uncircumcised guy with him and he didn't want to uh, you know, upset the Jews and do something that would violate them. But he did meet privately. It wasn't a Jewish meeting. It was a group of Christians. And Gentile believers there uh, was absolutely okay. Now, after this time in Crete, we do discover that Paul, Paul sent later um, Titus on over to an area called Dalmatia. And in Second Timothy, turn there if you would, chapter 4, verse 10. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, and Titus for Dalmatia. Now, we have a map here tonight, and I want to show you where Dalmatia is. So, it's this uh, place, right? Where is it there? Oh, there it is. This big white thing says Dalmatia. It's right here along the Adriatic Sea. I've actually been right here to an island called Krek and up here to Rijeka. And I've been right down here to Split. We just started a Calvary Chapel there last year in Split. It's a two-hour boat ride over here to Italy and about four and a half hours into Rome. And again, right here is the island of Crete. So he was here for a time establishing the churches that we're going to learn. And once that was done, he sent him on over, and then Paul joined up and met them in this area right here. And this is as far as north as Paul's ministry went to this area right here of Dalmatia, which today is Croatia. We got another map there, right? Which today is Croatia, and uh, 
so yeah, here's uh, Zagreb, and this is Croatia. Right next door here is Bosnia. Right here, see, is Hungary. So the Hungarian leadership, once a year, they go on a retreat together, and we actually travel down. It's about a 16-hour drive right down here to this area, Krek and Split, and, and then uh, we drive through Zagreb. So uh, Budapest is about right here, and we drive right through. And actually, at one point, we come through Bosnia and come back out. It's radical because after the war, um, we went back in there, the Americans went back in there, and we rebuilt Croatia. And we rebuilt that place better than it ever was before. And uh, they have a highway system that's equal to the highway in California. As a matter of fact, you know the Americans that built the highway over there built the highways in America or in California. The same ones, because you think you're in California at times. I mean, the signs are identical, except it's in Serbian. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the layout of the freeways and the off-ramps and the on-ramps, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Better than anything, really, in all of Europe, outside of Germany. But Germany has even that, just a small amount of their freeways are to that degree. Austria, yeah, they're equal there. But uh, they're just a beautiful freeway. And, of course, we're used to the California signs and everything, so it's very easy uh, to travel through there now. But um, so here we we see here in the book of uh, Titus that he's talking to him, and he says, so you're my true son in the common faith. In other words, he's making it clear to him that what we believe as Christians is believed on in the whole world. This isn't some special little insight, some special little gospel we have. And when people break off from all of Christendom and say what we have is different from everyone else, they are a cult. Okay? And so, yes, in methodology, we are different from Baptist or the Lutheran or the Presbyterian and and, uh, Assembly of God and so forth. But far as the gospel, we are 100% identical. And far as some minor teachings that does not change Christianity at all, we are 1.2% different. So there's only 1.2% different of the Bible that we see differently. So 98.8% of the Bible we see identically. The 1.2% difference, difference that we have it's, it's simply on all kinds of minor issues. For example, the Baptist would say, and the Presbyterian would say, not all, again, there's so many different types of Presbyterians, so many different types of Baptists, but they would say the gifts of the Holy Spirit are no longer for today. So you don't have tongues or prophecy or words of knowledge or words of wisdom or whatever. And actually, in a church like ours, there might be some of you that hold that position. And uh, that's, that's fine. That's, that's your... Uh, you know, study more. You'll disagree with yourself after a while, but that, that's your position. Now, in the assembly of God, they say, until you speak in tongues, you're not baptized in the Spirit. That's the sign. Now, they're a very small group that believe that. But again, it's, it's sort of an irrelevant point, whether you believe that everybody believes we need the power of God. So the Baptist can sit right next to the guy from the Assembly of God and they can both pray for God's empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that in, in America, we really have sharp dividing lines. You do not find that when you go to the mission field. On the mission field, you're a Christian, praise God. I don't care if you're Methodist or Assembly of God or Baptist or Presbyterian. We could, <laughs> we could care less. We're trying to fight against a, a lost culture. We're trying to fight against people who don't know the Lord. And we don't have time to sit around and debate these trivial little points. Okay? And, uh, but however, you find in America and England and in places like Germany and stuff that are more westernized, you find very sharp lines. In other words, if you believe the gifts are for today, I don't want to even associate with you, even though we're both Christians. And that is so absolutely wrong. And that's why we are a non-denominational church. We are not a denomination. 
The word denomination itself means to divide. And so when somebody says we're a denomination, in essence, they're saying we are part of the problem. We are dividing ourselves from everyone else because we hold that these peripheral points are so important. Um, Other things are like the Lord's coming back. Is the rapture, the pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, amillennial. You know what, as, as big at times as an issue as it becomes, guys, it is a very small peripheral issue. Okay, um, and so again, the guy who's post-trib, who doesn't believe the Lord's coming back till the end of the tribulation period, he's going to be wonderfully surprised when the pre-rapture comes, um, or maybe the Lord will say, "Be it unto you according to your faith." Um, <laughs> you believe I wouldn't come back till the post? Well, I'll leave you here until I. No, I don't think so. But uh, either way, for us to say we can't have fellowship on ninety-eight point eight percent of the rest of the Bible. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. And so I've seen people come in just really upset, you know. Oh, you know, there's somebody on the radio before you, right after you, holds a different position. And man, they were saying this and that. And, you know, you know it's like, look, I can sit here and, and prove to you my point, And you listen to him, he'll prove his point, whoever that person is. But either way, it's not a dividing issue. It's not an issue that should divide the body of Christ. And because I'm the pastor, when we get to those issues, I'm going to teach it as I believe it. And, you know, you're just going to have to suck it up and say, well, you know, I don't believe the gifts are for today, but when Brian teaches through the book of Acts, man, he believes it, and or he's teaching 1 Corinthians, you know, he's going to tell everybody to pray to be baptized in the Spirit. Uh, but you know what? I have people all the time that come up and go, I've been in this church a year and a half and you've never taught I'm being baptized in the Holy Spirit. You know what? It's only a couple of places in the Bible. And because we're teaching through the Bible, we just haven't got there in the last year and a half. Well, you gotta make sure you teach on that once a month. Okay, you see, I believe God has the whole Bible exactly the way he wants it. And not only does he have all the teachings he wants, but he has them the amount of time he wants. So I may hit some issues over and over and over again because they're in the Bible over and over and over and over again. Man, you taught that same point out of Genesis and you brought it up again in Exodus and you brought it up when we were in Titus. It's because it's there. If it's not there, I'm not gonna try to weave it in to you know, stand up on my little hobby horse and, and you know, uh, to give my teaching on that because I think that the meat and potatoes, God decides what's the meat and potatoes. And what's the dessert? God will decide what the dessert by how many times it's in the Bible and by the emphasis it's put on. And so again, in times, it's in a lot of the Bible, but it's not in every book of the Bible. And so it's not uncommon for us to teach through a whole book of the Bible and in times never comes up or the baptism of the Spirit never comes up. Or uh, worship never comes up. So again, um, this is, the I think, the genius of following Chuck's example of just teaching verse by verse through the whole Bible. And uh, so here again, he's, he's telling Titus, what you're going there to teach in Crete is the same thing we're teaching everywhere in the world. And see, I've had people come up and they've, they've said to me, you know, when I listen to your teachings, and by the way, we had, it appears we got, it's either every night or once a week, about a thousand hits, people listening to the teachings on our website from other parts of the world. So it's not even here in America. So it's exciting to see people using it all over the world. But people come up and they say that. They say, you know what? Your teaching works in Africa or Europe or China or Japan or the Philippines, the teachings work. Because I'm not trying to teach something that appeals to the American gospel. And it's ridiculous sometimes when you hear some of the doctrine that's not correct doctrine. You know, I'm thinking in, in, in particular the health and wealth gospel. And people go over to Africa or Philippines or 
the India, some incredibly poor parts of the world, and these pastors have to throw their sermons away because it would be ridiculous to preach some of the things they preach in America to some of those parts of the world. Number one, it's not in the Bible to begin with. They've sort of taken it from the Bible and got their own little doctrine going. But again, what we teach here, we should be able to receive anywhere in the world equally. And so he's encouraging him and he's telling him here, this is the common faith. And then he goes on to say there in verse four, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So make a note here, he adds the word mercy. In all of Paul's letters, he says grace and peace. But yet in the three pastoral epistles, he adds the word mercy. Why is that? Because pastors often don't have mercy on themselves. Leaders, mature Christians, we often forget to have mercy on ourselves. You see, as we grow in the Lord, we're thinking we should know better. (laughs) We shouldn't be that weak. We should have already overcome those things. But you'll discover in Christianity, you grow. But then you have to sort of come back a little bit to lay a more firmer foundation to grow to another story, if you would. And then you sort of come back and you got to lay a deeper foundation to go to the next story. So a lot of times you think, man, I've learned that. But yet there's a whole nother depth, a whole nother density that you got to learn that again. And so often guys are walking in purity, walking in holiness for a year or, or more and they're doing great. And then all of a sudden they get hit with the temptation or they get hit with the trial. They get hit with something they've not yet been hit with in their Christian experience. And all of a sudden they find a weakness that they hadn't had since they were a baby Christian. And they just want to set and beat themselves up all day over it rather than just to come back and realize, you know what? There's no good thing that dwells in me. And after living a pretty holy life the last couple of years, I started thinking there was some, pretty holy, some holiness in me of my own. And I've had to relearn at a deeper level, I am still depraved. I am, my heart is desperately, deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And you know what? That's why Paul said, be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. And I realized, man, I've been acting like I'm such a mature Christian, I'm invincible. Guess what? (laughs) I'm scared to death of my flesh again, like I was back when I first got saved because I realized I'm not invincible. And I need to come back and, and you learn again and again and again. And so as Christians, you know, we've been Christians for some people 20, 30 years. And we can still struggle with things of our flesh. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying, well, everybody struggles, so go ahead and struggle. By no means. We should say to each other every single day, don't sin. Let us not sin. Sin, you're going to reap what you sow. Sin injures you, injures others. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It can hinder God's plan for your life. But then we need to just put a comma at the end of saying that and say, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 2. Don't sin, comma, but if you do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous who's a propitiation for our sins and for the whole sins of the whole world. And so this is important because first of all, in the Christian experience, we have grace. And grace is God's unmerited favor. This is something that you would never experience in the world apart from God. It's God introduces this whole concept. And it's this. God comes to us and says, in spite of your wickedness, in spite of your sin, in spite of how evil you've been, I love you and I want to save you. I want to pay the penalty of your sin and I want to take you to heaven. I think probably the perfect picture of that is the thief on the cross. Again, we see 
this guy, he's mocking Jesus on the way. You gotta be a hardened guy on your way to your own death to want to make fun of somebody else and to cut somebody else down. I mean, even some of the most hardened criminals, when they're being dragged off to the electric chair or taken off to the gallows, were weeping like a baby and soiling their own pants and, you know, were just terrified at the thought, I'm gonna die in the next two minutes. But yet this guy is just so hardened, he's mocking Jesus along with the rest of the world. But yet when he's on the cross, he wakes up and realizes, this is the Messiah. Lord, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And we see grace there. I mean, even the most kindest person in the world would say, hey, buddy, you gotta pay for your own sins. Hey, you know, you made your bed lie in it. You know what? I'll send you to a lesser part of hell. (laughs) Not as hot, not as damning. But to say, today, you will be with me in paradise. When this guy was not just your ordinary thief, he was a a thief to the point that they were gonna not just put him to death. We're talking a thief that was so incorrigible. They didn't just put him to death, but they did something they only did for the worst of all criminals, and that was to crucify him. So we're not talking about your ordinary wicked guy, your ordinary bad guy here. We're talking probably one of the worst thieves the nation had ever seen. And to make a clear note, we have caught this guy. We are crucifying him publicly to make it clear at a time when the biggest population that Jerusalem ever sees every year is there. That's all the Jews coming from all over the world. About three million Jews show up there. And they're making it clear, this guy is wicked, and we see how wicked he is as he's mocking Jesus on the way to his own death. And there the Lord says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did that guy do? He simply believed on the Lord. In Romans chapter 10, it says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, you are saved. That's it. If you really have that surrender of heart and to Jesus as your Lord, you're saved. That's just a radical, powerful thing to think that that guy who sinned and continued to sin his whole life, in the last seconds of his life, believed upon the Lord, he will be sharing the same heaven with us for all of eternity. No doubt, probably the poorest guy there, (laughs) or one of the poorest guys in heaven, having basically zero reward, But yet he's such a perfect example of how salvation is by grace alone. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, let's say it together. By grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by grace and having faith in that grace. Now it says in Colossians, as you receive the Lord Jesus Christ... So now walk in him. So you cannot get saved unless the Lord just floods you with grace to put your faith in him, to turn from your wicked ways and to believe upon him and to turn to him. So every one of us, when we get to heaven, we're gonna have one boast and that's in the grace of God. We're not gonna go to heaven saying, well, I did live a pretty good Christian life for about 20 years. None of us are gonna do that. Our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags before God. Believe me, we can never earn a right standing before God. He has to give it to us as a gift. And so you're never saved until you quit trying to earn your salvation. This is what we have in Romans 9, 10, and 11. This is what we have in Hebrews chapter four. The Jews continued in their own righteousness to be righteous before God. And he says they stumbled at the stumbling stone and therefore they are rejected before God because they would not receive the righteousness of God by faith, but wanted God to receive their righteous works as their payment into heaven. And God has rejected that. So that's such an important thing because so often people are like, Well, I have faith in God, but I got this little pocket of good works just in case. 
It doesn't happen that way. It happens by faith or happens by works. I, I got a few of those too. And as long as you've got that in your back pocket, you're never saved. <laughs> when I stand before God and he says, why do you, should I let you into my heaven? There's one reason. Because of the grace given to me through Jesus Christ. And I believed in that. I believed in his grace. He's gonna say, well done. Come on in to the heaven. That's it. Nothing else will qualify me to go to heaven. Now, how do we make it as a Christian? The same way. John 15 says, abide in me because apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. I believe that. How could I save myself? There's nothing I could do to save myself. How am I going to make it daily as a Christian? I don't have the effort. I don't have the ability. I don't have the goodness. I don't have the self-discipline. I don't have the strength. I don't have the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control in and of myself. Everything I need to take one step to live the Christian life, it is only by the grace of God. So I may add diligence in my faith, but I quickly sense I need God's grace as I take that step of faith to get in the word, as I beat my body into subjection and take that step to live obediently, I have to have this flood of God's grace to accomplish it. And I often find that when I am not being successful in seeking the Lord or fighting sin or being a witness, I drop to my knees and I just cry out, grace, grace, oh God, grace. I need a greater grace. I need more love. I need more goodness. I need more kindness. I need more self-control. I need more of your help right now to be the person you have called me to be. And you see, God is never looking at you saying, come on, buddy, pick it up. Hebrews chapter four tells us, we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in all our weaknesses. So what's to be our response We're to come boldly into the throne of what? Grace. Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16. We got to come boldly. See, that's faith. That's faith. You see, so often people are, oh God, I'm such a crud. You shouldn't even hear my prayer. And you know, I don't know why you saved me to begin with. I'm such an idiot. You know what? All that may be true, but it's not walking in faith. And it grieves God. It grieves God. We need to come in faith. And faith comes boldly. So we come boldly into that throne of grace. To receive what? Grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. I didn't save me. A matter of fact, apart from God, I never would have thought of the thought. It was God who called me to himself. In John chapter 6, no one can come unto me unless the Father draws them. So you're here tonight by the grace of God. How many know that? Yeah. (laughs) Believe me, how many of you guys almost didn't make it here tonight? And how many of you had to cry out, grace, grace? Yeah. I mean, believe me, that's, you know. But you know why you're here? Because you've learned to lean upon the grace of God. Now, when you learn to lean upon the grace of God, guess what you're going to have? The very next thing he talks about, the peace of God. But you're not going to have the peace until you understand to walk in grace and to call out to grace and to live in grace and to look to grace. You're never going to have peace because you're always saying, I'm not good enough. I should have been better. I should have been more patient. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And, And you're looking at yourself. That's the wonderful thing about Christianity. We can get our eyes off ourselves and onto Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Bible says to do that. Put your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if you're here and you're depressed because you're looking at yourself, the Bible never said to do that. And if you're going to do that, the Bible already told you what you're going to see. Something that's desperately, deceitfully, wicked, (laughs) weak, 
Apart from him, I can do nothing. I mean, go right on down the list. So before you look there, get what the Bible says, what you're going to see to begin with. Because if you don't, you're going to look and expect to see something of yourself that the Bible says is not going to be there. You know what? I am holy tonight. As a matter of fact, I am as holy as Jesus. You say, how in the world can he say that? Because he's given me that. It's a gift to me. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become what? The righteousness of Christ. Ephesians chapter one says, he predestined us before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. All I'm doing is saying what the Bible says. (laughs) Now, practically, is that happening at this very moment? No. But I know God's heart, and that's sanctification. That's where I'm pursuing God's direction. God has said, Brian, I'm making you holy like I'm holy. God, then I'm running in that direction. I'm going to do everything I can to add to my faith and diligence to be holy as you are holy. Brian, I have declared you to be righteous as I am righteous, and I'm running to walk in that righteousness practically as you've called me to be righteous. So positionally, I've already there. If I were to leave this body right now and stand before Jesus Christ, and we were to take a picture together, you know what you would see? My righteousness equal to Jesus' righteousness. How did that happen? Because I have been given it by God as a gift. I definitely didn't live that way. I definitely didn't earn it by my good works. How is it I have attained to that righteousness? It was by a gift of God to me, by grace. Not of works, (laughs) you see, lest any man should boast. I have nothing to boast in except in the grace of God. I have nothing to boast in me except the goodness that God has showed towards me and his righteousness and his holiness and his sanctification and his redemption and all those things that he's given to me as a gift. So let him who boasts, boast what? In the Lord. Now, he adds the word mercy in there. Because you see, I know this as a pastor. You know this if you've been a Christian for a few years. How many have heard this message on grace and peace? How many of you guys have heard me preach this message? Yeah, about half of you or more. So it's not a matter of knowing it. It's a matter of doing it. But as leaders, again, we know it so well. We think, therefore, we should be doing it so well. But let me tell you something. There's a huge difference between knowing what's right and doing what's right. Matter of fact, about a couple billion light years in between the two. And so I know that I am to be holy as God is holy. He's already declared it to be so. Now, how do I get there? That's what this rest of the book is about. That's the rest of every one of the epistles. He first declares our position. He then tells us the gifts of God. And then he spends the rest of the book practically helping us get this body which is not going to cooperate in this world that's sold under sin to bondage unto Satan, in a world that's dominated by the God of this world, which is Satan, the Bible tells us, the prince of the power of the air, and how to accomplish the impossible, which is to walk just like Jesus walked on this planet. But first of all, as mature Christians, as leaders, elders, pastors, we have to realize that Until we are face-to-face with Jesus Christ, we're not going to be perfect. We need to try to be, but we're never going to attain to it. And that when we slip and fall, although we may have mercy on everybody else in the church, mercy on all the Christians we know, we need to learn how to have mercy upon ourselves. We need to be able to say, I blew it, God forgive me, let's get up and go. That's it. I've had people come in and, and say these kind of things to me. Man, I blew it, and I asked God to forgive me. I believe he's forgiven me. But here I am, six months later, still feeling so guilty about it. What do I do? 
Well, you need to believe the promise of God. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Have you done that again? No. Is there access to do that again? No. I've shut it down. I've repented. I've shut it down. I've not gone that direction since then. I just can't believe that I fell in such a basic way. I knew so better. I've been in the Lord so long. And you know what? You need to read the pastoral epistles because you're not getting to peace because you're not receiving the mercy of God. You see, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And that's something every one of us need to receive. Think about this, if you would. Two thieves on the cross. Not one thief and one murder, one rapist and one murder, but equal thieves. Equally, these guys are incorrigible. Equally, these guys are mocking Jesus on the way to the cross. This one guy on this moments before he dies says, Jesus, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember to me. Jesus in grace. I mean, imagine this pain, agony, suffering, holes pierced through your body, people mocking you, hanging naked before your own mother and your disciples and the thousands of people walking by in humiliation as if you're some criminal when you're perfect in righteousness and holiness, accused of all kinds of evil, never having done one sin. But yet when this guy speaks, just grace, love, and mercy. This thief will not get what he deserves. He's never going to pay for one of his sins. But yet here's the other thief on the other side of Jesus who doesn't believe and he's going to spend all of eternity paying for the penalty of his sin in a lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever and ever. You just have to receive. If you can receive the grace of God tonight, then just receive the mercy. You say, but it's not fair. Praise God. (laughs) It is not fair. It's horribly unjust. But that's why Jesus took all the justice upon him that he could be unjust with us. Isn't that wonderful? It's not fair. And that's why when somebody stands before God, well, I just want him to be fair. It's like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Because fairness is for you to go into the hottest place of hell for all of eternity. You want fairness? That's fair. You don't want fairness. You want mercy. You want him not to give you the penalty of what you should get. And that is something we need to come to grasp with as Christians. On this earth, you will reap what you sow. There is a real pain in sin. There is a real devastation that can happen with marriages or parents and their children or best friends or missing out on God's plan for your life. I mean, I don't want to make it, I don't want to trivialize sin up here and make it sound like, yeah, go send your head off, God will forgive you next week and (laughs) you don't have to pay for it. I, I don't want that message to get across because that's not accurate. You sin, you will suffer. You will, God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. And that's why the wise man makes wise choices. In particular, you flee from evil and don't do sin. The less sin, the less you grieve the Holy Spirit, the more he works through your life, the greater joy, the greater blessings, the greater prosperity. The, the, there's just a great, there's just so much wonderful things to reap in sowing unto righteousness. So I don't want to trivialize sin. But on the other side, if you are down, depressed, struggling with sin, you shouldn't be. The righteous man falls seven times. I love the fact that the righteous man is still called the righteous man even though he falls seven times. The word seven, or the number seven in the Hebrew means completion. Eight starts the new beginnings. Seven notes in a scale, the eight starts the new one. Seven days in the week, eight starts the new one. And so he's saying, even though this guy completely sins 
falls into sin. That's what it says in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned, past tense, and fallen short of the glory of God. That's in the present. Repeated action. In the past we have sinned. In the present we are continually falling short of the glory of God daily. Daily we sin. There's not one day if we put our head on the pillow and say, God, search my heart, see if there be any wicked way in me. He says, well, by the way, you have insulted the spirit of grace. You have grieved the Holy Spirit. You did offend somebody. You did sin. And we grieve and we say, God, forgive me. And we get up tomorrow purposing our heart to live a holy life, but we will fall short again. And how we have to come to the terms to receive grace, to receive mercy. Why? So we have the peace of God. Now the word for high in the Greek language is this word grace. Charisis. It literally means power to you, man. Because the Greeks were into power. Power to you, man. You got the power. Do it. Of course, they Christianized that saying, power to you from God. Walk in the grace of God. Walk in the power of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. In the Hebrew, the word shalom is the word peace. But if you look up the word shalom, it means wholeness, completeness, entirety, fulfillment. In other words, there's no cracks in your life. In other words, there's no kinks in your armor. There's no blemishes. You're you're a whole person. You're whole as a husband or a wife. You're whole as a parent. You're whole as a person, as a Christian. You've been healed in every way. You've become a complete person. Have you met people like that? Often that's what non-Christians are attracted to in Christians. They see somebody who's a whole person. Not perfect, but they've been made whole. And when you receive the grace of God, you receive his mercy, you will become a whole person. The Hebrew word in, in the Old Testament translated integrity Turn, if you would, over to Psalms 25 as we end here tonight. Psalms 25. David, in this psalm, is talking about his sin and, and, and how he's struggling with sin. And, and he says, starting in verse 11... For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him he shall teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity. His descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Verse 16. Turn yourself to me. Have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look on my affliction and my pain. Forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. Keep my soul. Deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. And then he says this. It seems out of place. It seems contradictory. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Isn't it radical? When you read it, David's saying, man, I'm sinning, I'm struggling, help me, pluck my feet out of the net. I'm getting like a bird, getting ready to get caught by the, those uh, captures who caught the birds in those days to kill him. And I feel like I'm trapped, I'm going down here. But let integrity, <laughs> the word wholeness. And in math, you have integers, whole numbers, and you have fractions. That's the word here. He's saying, let the fact that I'm an integer, I'm a whole person, And also, what? My uprightness. (laughs) What uprightness? The fact that he agreed with God. I'm a sinner. The fact that my eyes are upon you. And so God wants us to walk in the wholeness, our integrity, the uprightness of our heart in calling sin, sin. Don't dabble around and say, oh yeah, you know, I did this a little bit and that a little bit. And, and then to, you know, we, we, try to, we try to color it in a way that it looks okay. You just committed adultery. No, I had an affair. You, you were drunk. Oh, I have a substance abuse problem. You know, we, we, we like to 
change it and, and make it sound better than it is. But uprightness as a Christian calls it the way it is. It's not a weakness. It's not a this issue or that issue. It was stinking sin. And I did it. Forgive me, God. I don't ever want to do it again. I want it out of my life. Heal me, help me. When you come to God like that, in his grace, in his mercy, even though we fall short every day, even though we struggle in many areas of our life, and we all do, we all stumble in many ways, we can be a whole person because God, by the power of his spirit, through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior, can make you a whole person. If you walk in grace, receive his mercy, then you'll have the peace, the shalom, the completeness, the entirety, and the wholeness. Now, if you'll notice in that verse in Titus, it doesn't mention the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit who's the one writing it. We know in, in uh, Peter it says that no um, Scripture is by any private interpretation or by any private origination but it's come as the holy men of God have been moved by the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter 1.21. And also John 16, Jesus said, many other things I have to say to you, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you and he'll guide you in truth and he'll speak of the truth. So the Holy Spirit is the author of all scripture and he is writing on behalf of God our Father and the one who we receive all the messages from, we receive through our Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us that in Hebrews chapter 1. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight. We do ask in Jesus' name, as we continue to look in depth at Titus, that you would look in depth at us, that you would let this light of your word penetrate in a deeper part of our hearts, of our lives, of our minds. Lord, we thank you that these men and women here tonight are coming to be students of your word as you said, that we are to not just glance at the word or breeze through the word, that we are to show ourselves a workman in the word, rightly dividing every word of truth. And here we are tonight doing that very thing, dissecting every sentence, every word, right down to every phrase and and turning over every rock and to say, Lord, speak to us. And Lord, we ask tonight, Lord, that you would help all of us be people of grace that we would be strong in the grace, that we would grow in grace, we would walk in grace. It's by your grace you have saved us and it's by your grace, the gospel of grace, Paul said in Acts 20, that we grow in as we preach grace. Help us to know you and your wonderful grace in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Hey, before you head out tonight, grab somebody around you. And say, hey, what is one thing I can pray for you through the rest of this week? And you have a great, great week in the Lord. Bye-bye.